Broadcasting from the community of the future. Live from the co-prosperity sphere, this is Radio Free Bridgeport. And now your host, Mr. John Daly. Yeah. Uh, we've got a special guest in town, uh, Mr. Jerry Trekker, and uh, he'll be joining us. We've got a musical guest, the Killer Drones, and we're going to be talking about Bridgeport Little League. We've got uh, some artists coming in and uh, hopefully a, a great show. Welcome to Radio Free Bridgeport on WLPN. Mr. T, how are you? Oh, hanging in there. You know, uh, seems like every year goes by a little bit faster. Well, I, pr- I appreciate you being here, and uh, unfortunately, uh, we've got uh, Jamie recovering, although he made it to the studio anyways. He can't stay away. We <laughs> knew that was going to happen. So, uh, But a lovely day in Bridgeport, and I'm glad you guys uh, are in town while, uh, while he's getting better. Well, it's what you do. Uh, wish I could have brought you a little warmer weather, <laughs> a little less ice on the streets, but uh, so far, so good. I appreciate the bagels from the East Coast. <laughs> well, the, the real deal. But uh, we are, we are, as I mentioned, uh, talking about at the top of the hour here, Bridgeport baseball. We'll be talking about uh, sport in general and uh, and youth leagues. And um, we've got uh, Bill and uh, Teresa Laprette from uh, 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 Donovan Little League. Welcome. Well, thank you. Hello. Thanks for having us. Thanks for being here. So tell us a little bit about uh, how long you've uh, been involved in this league and uh, and uh, what it is today. Um, we. Started in the league um, back in 1997 with our oldest boy at three years old. Um, Been there just, ever since. Yeah, just started off coaching, and about 13 years ago we took over running the league. So we've been there. I think we're starting our 24th year of being at Donovan Park. Well, that's some uh, some great service to the community, and thank you. Yeah. How how many leagues? Uh, how many teams do you have in the league this year? Um, we just started registration um, last year, I believe. With all the kids we had and everything, we were close to about seventeen. We had about two hundred and fifty kids total. Yeah. We start at age three and we go all the way up to age sixteen. And how are those teams divided? I mean, how much age group separation do you maintain? So we try to keep up with uh, other leagues in the city because as the kids get older, like 10 years and up, they do inner city play. So we play other leagues in the area. Um, So the way they're divided is almost like it's just like rule of thumb. Um, We do have our three and four-year-olds. You definitely have to keep them together because their intention span is not long. And then you have five and six-year-olds. And then we do 7 to 9, 10 to 12, 13 and 14, and then 15 and 16. So they're not divided by skill or anything like that. We don't believe, we don't believe in, in that. Um, there is a draft when they get to 10 years old and up, so that's pretty exciting. The coaches come in and randomly just pick kids. They don't know them. They don't know their skill level or anything. They just get the luck of the draw and they get what they get. And then that's a coach's job is to coach them and teach them um, the sport and sportsmanship and um, how to get along, how to make friends. Um, so, you know, it's a coach's job. But 
all our coaches, everything's volunteer. Nobody gets paid to do um, any any of it. We don't get paid to run it. Um, strictly volunteer for everybody. There's no big uh, scouting before the draft? <laughs> yeah, no. We don't line them up. We don't make them do drills. No. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> we were talking a little bit before uh, we came on the air about the uh, fluctuation in numbers that uh, you've seen in, in youth sports. Uh, give us a little history of what's happened in your 23 years. Uh, how have the numbers developed and where, where do you see it going? Um, our numbers when we first started there were very strong. We had tons of teams. Um, and then travel baseball stepped into the picture a little bit, started taking away some of the better players that were in the leagues. And then we had fathers deciding that, you know what, I think my son's good enough to be on travel team. And he would start one and then pull some more players. And then it got to a point where travel baseball got so watered down where every dad, you know, every dad thinks their kids are great. Um, they started just making teams and now it's starting to die down a little bit um, where the kids are starting to come back to the park districts because it's basically almost the same thing as what they're getting in travel for less the month, you know, less the money. Instead of paying, you know, $1,000 or so where they can get away with just paying $100, $150 and basically do the same thing that our kids are doing, traveling through the local parks and playing different people, different talent, and seeing, you know, basically almost the same thing but at a cheaper cost. And what would a normal week be like uh, in season for for the kids? I mean, how many games? How many practices? What would they? What are they essentially signing up for? Say in that age ten and up group. Um, normally, they play at least two games a week. Uh, practices are totally up to the coaches because that's we don't know their schedule, their work schedules. Uh, but most of the coaches sometimes have two practice, at least one practice a week. Uh, we play Monday through Thursday, and then Saturday and Sunday. The only time we don't really play at the park is on Fridays because they have adult softball league. So we share the park, you know, friendly. <laughs> so the um, 10-year-olds, the 10 to 12-year-olds, they usually play. Um, we try to make the their games home games, um, and but other parks come play us. Our teenagers, our high school age, we call it thirteen to sixteen. They do a lot. They do travel. Um, nothing out of state, though. They don't do like out of state travel, but they travel all over the city um, to compete against other parks. They even we join a league with them, um, and then they do like playoffs, and they have all that stuff at the end too. So it's it's pretty fun for them. Um, but like Bill was saying. It gives them some type of travel experience uh, to see what else is out there, what other talent is out there, and it gives them the opportunity to get outside of their neighborhood as well um, to experience different areas of the city. So they seem to enjoy it. So that's interesting. So you have interleague play, mm-hmm. um, and then how many of the two games per week are, or, or is it once a month, or how, how much is travel? Um, the older kids are 13 and 14s. Uh, we try to make as many games as we can at home uh, to make it convenient. But um, 
they, they do, do travel. Yeah, they do at least one game a week where they're traveling. Um, because since they're older kids, we limit uh, park down to just having them play because we don't, you know, um, don't want nobody else on the other field. Um, so their games are usually a little bit later in the day, like 7.30. So... They travel at least once a week. Yeah. So that's interesting. So is it a, is it a, um, a travel team within the league or is it uh, within the league play? It's both. So they play, if there's two teams, they'll play against each other. Um, uh, and then they also play other teams outside the park. They're actually called the Donovan Dragons. Oh, okay. So um, they're, they're travel. We do enter them in a couple of tournaments at Ho-Chunk, um, cause at Ho-Chunk down in Linwood. Um, they play, you know, a tournament or two down that way to give them the experience of, of tournaments. Um, so, yeah, it's, they have a pretty rigorous schedule. They usually start practicing now UIC um, college. They let us use their indoor facility. So we try to get the kids out there for winter practices um, when it's available to us. So, and that's for um, usually 10 and up. Um, some of our seven and seven through nine year olds are able to use the facility as well. Uh, we just get it later in the evening, so three and four year olds can't make it at seven o'clock at night. They're right. going to bed. <laughs> <laughs> so um, we do we do give them that opportunity as well because it's available to us. Now you said you're just starting your registration. Uh, what what does that involve, and how do kids and, and families who maybe are not familiar with how you're organized, how do they get involved? So they can go on our website. We have a website, DonovanBaseball.com, and there's information on there, the breakdown of the ages for the teams. We also have online registration. Um, if the families are interested, our phone numbers are also listed on there. We're on Facebook as well, Bridgeport Little Major League. They can go on there for info, and they just contact us. We don't turn anybody away. We don't have boundaries. Um, some of the leagues in the area have boundaries because they belong to Little League organization. We don't, so we don't have any boundaries. So we take kids from all over. We have kids from Oak Lawn, like everywhere, that come play down by us. Um, so we don't turn anybody away. We we never say no. Everybody plays. You were talking a little bit about uh, your experience in, in uh, Little League as well. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, as, as I was saying, I, I go back to when Little League was brand new, and uh, that was in 1949-1950. Uh, and, in fact, uh, the, the first little leaguer to make it to the major leagues was a, a pitcher for Cincinnati named John Jay, who happened to play in, in Connecticut, Stamford, Connecticut. And I actually played against his team in, I think it was 1951. Uh, but was saying Little League really became the template for youth sports uh, in the United States. It was the first highly organized, uh, structured uh, children's, if you will, uh, sports. Uh, and we pretty much have followed that pattern now in, in many other sports, uh, sometimes successfully, sometimes not. Um, I know my experience as a Little League player was great. I enjoyed every minute of it. Um, but I uh, didn't get involved in uh, playoffs or anything like that. Never felt uh, much pressure. You were saying earlier that um, you've seen changes yourself in, in how the kids are presented, how the parents are involved. Uh, Correct. And nationally, there's been a lot of talk and, and controversy over 
too much parent involvement in uh, youth sports. Uh, have you had to deal with any of those problems at all? Every year. <laughs> There's always one every year. <laughs> um, so, yeah, there are some parents who really want to be involved with their kid, but they don't coach. They just on the sidelines coaching. Um, so, yeah, there's always there's always one, um, like I said, every year. But most of our coaches, our dads, um, they step up and help out. Um, and if it wasn't for those dads, we wouldn't even have teams. You know, we wouldn't have coaches. So we really appreciate all our volunteers that um, come out and help. But yeah, you see a lot of a lot of parents on the sidelines. Why isn't my kid playing? Why don't they get playing time? But yet they're not out there practicing with them. So, yeah, <laughs> we see how, it a lot. How do you find the the uh, kids' level of baseball knowledge? Uh, do they come to you with a with a sense of the game, or or do you find that you have to do uh, your coaches have to do quite a bit of instruction? Uh, some of them come with really good knowledge of the game, but they don't have the skill, um, so it's up to our coaches. They know what they're doing, but they just gotta teach them the exact thing. You know, they like you hit them a ground ball. They know they gotta get down. They know they gotta get ready, but it's like the last minute that ball's coming and they turn their head away because they're afraid to get hit. But they know what they have to do. And it's our job to like teach them. Hey. Got to have confidence in yourself that you're going to be able to catch that ball. Don't be scared. If you do get hit, it's going to happen. Um, but other than that, um, we do get quite a few kids that don't know much about baseball, and the parents just want to get them into some kind of sport. And and it's our job to you know try to teach them. Um, but I'm sure things have changed a little bit, too, though, in baseball that we've seen since our, our oldest is 26, our youngest is 16. In that time span, we've seen baseball change to where it's more competitive. So at the age of 7 and 9, they're stealing bases. You know, we're trying to teach them how to steal bases because as they progress and they get to 13, 14 years old and they try out for their baseball team, you want them to have a little bit more knowledge of how they can compete to make their baseball team. So I think it's a little bit more um, advanced than it was back in the day. Um, but they can still have fun. What little kid doesn't love to slide in the <laughs> home plate, you know? <laughs> Three- and four-year-olds are trying to slide in the home plate, and they don't really – they don't really – they play, but it's not really struck. You know what I It's like organized chaos is what I call it. Um, but the sport itself, I think, has changed – as far as the competitiveness goes, if that makes sense. Along the way, have you had to uh, modify your rules about participation and who gets into games and how many innings do, do kids get guaranteed and so forth? Yeah, we got um, rules for that. Um, every coach knows all the kids. Um, they got to play at least two innings in the field. We have a continuous batting order so there isn't like just nine kids batting and that's it every kid that shows up he bats that you know they got to get out in the field um so you know johnny's not playing the whole entire game eventually he has to get taken out um this way it it makes it fair for everybody and we sort of keep track um since i quit coaching a little bit i stay back and watch it um, some parents are bringing 
that to our attention that they believe that their kid hasn't been playing that much. So I'll come to the game and scope it out and see, and I'll see what's going on. But some of these kids, too, I've seen, and I explained to the parents, the coach is trying to get them to get out there to go play, and they're like, I don't want to go out there. I don't want to play. They're throwing a tantrum in the dugout, <laughs> and it's like, you don't want to fight with them because it, it makes it even worse. It's like, okay, you don't have to play. Go ahead, sit down in this <laughs> inning. But eventually they do have to get their two innings in. Um, and then as they get older, though, because the, the high school age is a little bit more tricky because they're not going to be playing every inning, every game when they get to high school. So you want to kind of prepare them for that as well. Um, but they all do get an opportunity to get out on the field. And, you know, at an older age, they have to – show that they want to be there they want to compete um and they're not still crying at the age of 13 i don't want to go out there it's too hot do i have to put that equipment on you know (laughs) i probably would have been in that category (laughs) what how are the uh how did the dragons do last season um we made it all the way to the last round of the playoffs and we lost to uh humble park uh, but the year before that, we won the city championship. Oh, wow. Yeah, they do pretty good when they want to. <laughs> <laughs> and what do you, how do you find the, uh, uh, the acceptance within the, the community? Do you get uh, some people just passing by who will stay and watch a couple of innings, whether they have someone uh, playing or not? I mean, does, do you sense a little bit of community involvement? We actually, we do. And we also have a concession stand. So we have a lot of neighbors that'll come up just for our hot dogs or hamburgers, and then they'll stick around and watch a game. So it is nice to see for the community. It's very nice to see them come together um, like that. We have players who've aged out and they're in their 20s and they come back just to, you know, check it out and see what's changed. And, um, you know, they'll catch a game every now and then. So it is really good to see that part. Um, of the baseball league for the community you know it gives the little ones something to do and they make friends as well as the adults the adults make friends Um, it's nice when you can when you have a toddler and they're playing in the park and you can still feel safe watching your toddler in the park and still watch your your daughter or your son playing baseball on the field Um, we try we keep it a safe community for all Um, and it's just a homey feeling. We don't have anyone that comes to our park and walks away mad or feels unsafe or like they can't be there. Um, so it's it's good all around, I think. I believe it is for our community. Have you always been co-ed or did that develop uh, since you, you took over? No, we've always been. We've always had a girl here or there, but we've seen more girls come out now um, at a younger age. Right. We have quite a bit of younger, you know, girls. And then we have softball, so then they kind of convert to softball. But we've had, when Bill coached, he's had a couple of girls on his team that actually were better than the boys. <laughs> yes, they have been. Well, you know, you talk about the community and the, the park that you're at, for, for those who don't know, has changed a lot since I was a kid growing up in the neighborhood. Um, I, you know, I, I heard a stat recently that there were 60 babies born around the park and all the developments. And so the, that main change that I'm talking about is all of the single family homes and row homes and a ton of uh, real estate development that's happened around around the park. Have you, has that impacted the uh, the league as well? 
absolutely. Um, like you were saying back in the day, it was all factories yeah. around there, a little corner store on the on the corner over there. Um, but with all the houses being built, um, we definitely have a lot of those people who come over and play. You know, when we when those houses first went up, they didn't realize we did such a young age. So they'd be playing in the park with their kids and be like, "Oh, you got baseball for a three year old? Yeah, absolutely, two and a half." <laughs> If you think he can sit out there, <laughs> fine, you know. <laughs> you said we don't turn anyone away, but definitely the, the property out going up over there has helped tremendously as well. So one more reminder uh, of how they get in touch with you if, if we have people who want to get involved, the website, Facebook. The website, DonovanBaseball.com. Uh, Facebook, we're under Bridgeport Little Major League. Um Bill's phone numbers plastered everywhere, <laughs> <laughs> um, so they can Bridgeport News. The Bridgeport News runs the article, um, and they can just stop it up at the park. We don't. We're an outside organization, Bridgeport Little Major League. We use um, Donovan's facility. It's always been that way. So people think that we work at the park. We don't work there, but we've been there for so long that we don't mind. But they can come to the park at any time and get information at the park And as well. when will the outdoor portion of, of your work really get started? So March, the field opens up in March if weather if. providing. Okay. Um, so they can start practices in March. Season, oh, season starts in the middle of April. Uh, and then we go until the end of July, so it's a decent it's a decent season. Yeah, once the f- weather breaks and I'm able to get out there with the tractors and tear up the fields and get them dried out enough and stuff, it's pretty good. Anything you want anyone to know about the league before uh, before we move on? Just that we're like I said, we're friendly. It's a safe area. We're we got a little hidden gem because it is kind of tucked off of Halstead Street. Um, it's a nice family fit community, and we're very diverse. So yep. we got all different ages, ages, girls, boys, race. We don't, and we don't turn anybody away. Well, thank you very much, and and uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you guys about uh, Donovan baseball and. Uh, Bill and Therese uh, Lepret, and uh, thank you guys. Thank you for having us. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to speak about our league. Thank you very much. Have a great season. Thank Thank you. you. Great meeting you guys. So we'll be right back. As I mentioned, we have the the killer drones are going to be in the studio. Um, We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back on WLPN 105.5 Chicago. It's been a tradition of LGBT fan fiction and artwork as well so the exhibit that's going to be here friday is what's called slash uh the slash uh, literally stands for the slash mark between kirk slash spock and it's um homo erotica it can be stories um poetry music film and artwork portraying them in a romantic or sexual relationship and it stems all the way back to the original when the original series was on the air. Um, What I was able to acquire, um, there was a luminary in the field uh, who went under the pseudonym Barbara Gordon, um, which is actually the name of uh, the uh, Batman character. Um, To this uh, day, we don't know what her true name was. Um, She lived in Chicago, a member of the LGBT community, and she passed away. And... uh, 
very sadly had no family, no friends, died in anonymity, and a local auction house received her estate. And there was her entire lifetime collection of Star Trek memorabilia, merchandise, props, costumes, just a, a fantastic collection in and of itself, but she also was the queen of Slash. She was a writer. She was an artist. Uh, this was something that they would be doing on typewriters and photocopiers and mimeographs back in the 70s, 80s. Uh, they would swap them, trade them, sell them, mostly through the mail. Uh, it's a pretty small, specific you know, subgroup of fans and collectors, but it has a resurgence now that there's more LGBT characters and sci-fi, comics, horror, everywhere. So a whole new generation is discovering it. And for better or for worse, um, her entire lifetime collection of artwork from all of the greatest slash artists, pretty much all of them women, was in her home, and I was able to acquire the entire collection. Um, I'm trans myself. I kind of felt like as a member of the LGBT community, this opportunity came up to kind of save it um, from, you know, I don't know what fate. I didn't know if I'd sell it or donate it, or, but I felt like she was part of Chicago. You know, this art is something that was, was this close to you know, literally ending up in a dumpster. And thanks to the gallery here, it's going to have a showing. Uh, it's going to have a chance to be appreciated out of the basement after 40-some years. And, you know, hopefully, you know, continue this spark that this new generation has for this for this artwork, for this genre. So this is a storyline that it, specific to fan fiction that you said that goes back to the beginning of the the story of, of Star Trek when that when yes. that first starts yes. being popular. Which, you know, again, people look at the original Star Trek and talk about all the technology they predicted that's now true and but there's so much more. There were you know, for the time, I mean that was kind of like all in the family. There was a lot of cultural there were a lot of things on that show, inclusiveness and social issues. You know, it might have been in the form of an alien, but it really was talking about race and and you know, society and things that were very, very progressive for the time. Other. The, that ring, totally ring true. And some people, you know, some fans speculate that there were gay characters on the show, but they just couldn't do it explicitly. So these kind of looks, you know, some fans interpret it, you know, that they're seeing something that's there. Some, it's just pure fantasy. I just want to take the characters I love and put them in the setting. It's the same thing with, I mean, there's Star Wars, there's Lord of the Rings, there's Starsky and Hutch, there's Zine and Gabrielle, there's LGBT, you know, fan fiction and artwork for pretty much any you know, comic book characters, pretty much anything that people, you know, love. You were saying uh, this uh, discovery that, that you uh, came to know about um, sounds like it almost just fell into your into your lap. How did how did you? Uh, even well, know to, to look. I knew the only way I knew it was something <clears throat> was that years ago I worked at a comic book shop and there was a great uh, writer of kind of like pop culture, anti, not anti culture, but really alternative culture, Adam Parfrey. And I had read some books of his that were collections of articles he had done about really fringe out there 
pop culture stuff. And he had gone to the Slash convention um, in California. I think there were maybe 10 or 12 attendees, and he interviewed them all and did this piece, and there were pictures in the book of the artwork, and just had it on my bookshelf, and all these, you know, whatever, 15, 20 years later, um, the uh, auction house had was saying, you know, this is what we're selling, and I went, oh my god, that's that stuff <laughs> from that book. And, and also, um, it's a great auction house, and they, they never say no to anything. Um, they don't they don't judge. I think other places, we're not going to sell that. We're not going to, you know, because there are explicit images in it. And they're like, we don't judge whatever people like. That's, you know. Um, but most of the people who are buying there are fairly traditional antique collectors or, you know, or buyers. And I thought, nobody's going to want this. Um, you know, certainly not, you know, it's located in a strip mall in the western suburbs. I'm like, who's going to? You know, in the city, maybe, but not out here. And in fact, it came down to me in one other bidder. Um, and I was able to, uh, you know, to buy the whole the whole group. Um, they also had her lifetime collection of the trades. There were over twenty thousand some of the of the individual original uh, trade paper, you know, books. Um, and all of those sold. Um, because people, thanks to eBay, everybody whipped their phones out and looked it up and saw that they were valuable. So those were going for a lot of money. And I just said, you know, something's telling me. Save your 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 cash. Wait till the very end. Wait till the toy guys are done. Wait till the – and try and get at least some of the artwork. I didn't think I was going to be able to get it all. Um And it went for very, very little money. I, I think people were quite honestly embarrassed to – bid because of the subject matter it was behind sheets there were a lot of giggles there was a lot of very immature comments and stuff floating out from behind the sheets as you would expect um and i just bided my time and said i'm gonna you know try and uh, you know snatch this up and find the right home for it what type of a you know you you kind of alluded to it um, that that all kinds of, of mediums but what kinds kinds of things are uh, can people expect in this show artifacts drawings or you know we well, when we were walking in I saw yeah, an it's, instrument maybe it's the one yeah it's all the artwork we do have a few uh, copies of the trades if you want to browse through those and read some of the stories and and poems and and so on they were planning on trying to get some stage readings of those. So those are certainly going to be here. And then um, also part of her collection, if anyone remembers, there's an episode where Spock plays, um, it's a harp-type instrument. Um, it, I can't remember the name of it. It's a genuine instrument that at the time that they filmed the show, they basically told the prop people, go look for something weird-looking in the instrument you know, uh, department. And they came up with this whatever it is, and he strummed it on the show and they overdubbed harp music. Well, they had, Barbara Gordon had one, had purchased one as a Star Trek collector, and a friend of mine bought it and took it to have it re, um, you know, to have it revamped, and it turns out the strings are totally ornamental and it has a primitive Moog synthesizer in it. <laughs> so the strumming is just for looks, and she had it restored, so it's fully playable, and it's kind of like a th- it's a theremin type sound. And you, 
use dials and buttons to produce music that way. And so that's going to be here, which is cool. Um, but it's mostly the, you know, the artwork, artwork by Barbara Gordon herself, um, Pat Stahl, um, Freyer, different. And it's an interesting range. Some of the artwork, it's very amateurish, quite not, you know, very high school art class. It's just plain bad art, but the heart and soul that's in it. I can remember being a teenager and like, I'm going to try so hard and concentrate. I'm, you know, trying really hard to draw this. I want it to turn out just right. So there's this charm and this, you can just see the passion that went into it. And then there's some of the artwork that is stunningly beautiful, the color work, that no matter what that artist was going to depict, you'd, you're would knock your socks off. She was just an amazing artist. Just so happens this is what, you know. You and know, this is this is all pretty much specific to the original Star this Trek. This is all series. original. This yes, this that I have that's from Barbara Gordon is all specifically Kirk and Spock from the original series. Has the interest in in the LGBT community continued through the various iterations of Star Trek as it has gone on? Well, I think it has as a sub, you know, it's it's never gone away, but now it's apparently coming back. I'm not I'm not familiar with the apparently one of the new Star Trek movies or remakes there's an openly gay character, there's an openly gay Star Trek or Star Wars couple, two, two aliens or something there's you know, I was a comic book geek, you know, it's like now so and so is the first gay comic book character. Oh no! Wait, Green Lantern was gay all along. <laughs> you know, there's always, you know, it's always been there. You know, I think just like you know, culture and society now, things are more out in the open or more, you know, prevalent. I don't know. Probably some of it's even to be popular. You know, for it just seem like they're being more. Um, but for me, what I like is that the new generations are going. Hey, this stuff existed back then. You know, who started, you know, who started it? You can like music now, but it's like, well, where was, who was their influence? You know, how did this, who, who did this band like that got their sound? So they're, you know, Facebook now there's um, slash um, artwork and some films and some artwork and stuff. Portraying classic Kirk and Spock, but they don't know who Barbara Gordon is. They don't know, you know, the roots. So this is I just think it's cool that, that the roots of this art form are being re you know rediscovered and reconnected to with the new you know the new generation. And you say she was a Chicago. She person. was a Chicagoan. Um, you know, it's confidential. The auction house, it's very confidential. They don't disclose you know where the you know what the address or you know would, if someone you know really wanted to research it you know, her life or do a documentary or something. It is public records. They could go to the courthouse and, you know, make it their project. I think it would be nice. There's nothing out there. I think it would be nice if someone made it their project. Um, but, um, yeah, it was just, you know, they said the neighbors didn't know. You know, she was it's just someone who died alone. The community knew who she was. Um, but even in the community, apparently, I've learned they're like, what? She passed away. Under under the pseudonym. Under the pseudonym, yeah. Is there examples of uh, material that have been adopted into canon and in other um, stories or other uh, kind of famous uh, projects? 
not that I'm aware of. I, yeah. I mean, you mentioned at the beginning, um, and and that time you mentioned all in the family and other kinds of, of stories and and Star Trek is was this a necessary outlet um, for the lack of of these types of stories being told for the LGBT community probably yeah. you know you know I'm sure um, you know and then there are also there's a big you know anti faction as there always is for anything you know of fans you know they're hardcore star trek fans and they think this is blasphemous and how dare you portray my beloved characters this way and da, da, da. and i can understand that i'm a i'm a pop culture kid i'm not religious and i'll i openly admit that there are some tv shows and tv characters that i'm i feel more passionately about than people probably do their their religion and because that's what I had to rely on or that's what made me happy, you know, like anything else that made you happy. And, you know, I don't know. I don't think I would get upset if I saw those characters that are so beloved to me being portrayed in a way that I didn't approve of because it's not, that's not for me to, to judge. You know what I mean? I don't own them. I don't, you know. Yeah. But I can understand people that have negative reactions, um, I don't know. Maybe if they were being portrayed in heterosexual relationships between the characters, would they still have the same objection? Well, you know, there's certain people that if we're in America, if it has anything to do with sex, they're going to have an e-jerk reaction and and say it's, you know, I don't know where that begins or ends. How many pieces in the collection? There's 74 pieces in total. Oh, wow. It's going to be and a big show. Yeah, and at this point, from the research that I've done, I also talked to two ladies that run. There's a convention. There's a slash convention um, every year, and they were like, "What? You have what? You have Barbara Gordon's?" Uh, they did a show at the last convention that was a grand total of three pieces, because you just don't find it's just not out there. You just don't find it. So wow. to this many pieces. In one place at one time, only Barbara Gordon would have had them all. Now here they, which was another thing when I bought the collection, I thought it's going to get split up. Now, you know, the collection is going to be for sale. I don't know if I'm going to sell it individually or as a, as a whole collection. You know, it would be sad to see it split up, but at the same time, I know it's going to go to people that really appreciate it. And rather see that than what was going to happen to it before I, you know, stepped in and purchased it. Um, but yeah, the convention people were very interested. But I'm torn because I really like the connection to Chicago. Chicago artists celebrate Barbara, take profits from it, donate to an LGBT cause in Chicago in her name, put her on the Walk of Fame or something. It's sad that she died. With, I mean, she knew people, knew who she was, and cared about her and her work, but it was kind of a sad end for her, and so I'd like to have her, for her to have one big last hurrah, whether she's here or not, knows it or not, um, you know, is to be celebrated for her contribution and for her work and as, an, as a member of that community in Chicago. It sounds like something that's really uh, quite unique and something that the uh, co-pro should be, be proud to say. Here, we've got something that's really quite well, different, and it's part of our city and part of our heritage. I appreciate it because I contacted you know, other places, and a lot of places that I thought would be interested were not. 
um, or other places that were interested. But I, as soon as I talked to the people here, it was lightning in a bottle. There were people here who knew that it was, were thrilled, were excited, were you know, you know, couldn't wait. So it was absolutely the again, that was the moment where my path crossed with the connect with the collection at the sale, and then my path crossed with these guys here, and it's. It couldn't have been more, worked out better. Remind us again uh, where and when and, and how people can find it. It is going to be here. What's the address here? Uh, 3219 South Morgan. Morgan. And Friday is the opening. Uh, it starts at 7 o'clock, and it's going to be here through February 15th. Wonderful. Jensen, anything else you want people to know? Uh, just come out and see it because while it's here in one time and one place, it's going to be the only time uh, to enjoy it. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. We will be uh, uh, right back on WLPN, LP Chicago, 105.5 FM. Welcome back to Radio Free Bridgeport. We, uh, we have a few minutes here. We're getting ready for the killer drones, but we thought we'd uh, talk a little bit about some uh, local sport, but also uh, even though the, the White Sox old uh, pitcher has said that there was some nefarious activity with video cameras, going on uh we are hopeful for this new season with the white Sox. yeah we certainly are although uh i think there's no question that uh, the last couple weeks in in sports have been in in some respects unbelievable um the baseball science sign stealing scandal uh to me is uh is a big story that i'm, I'm not sure even hardcore fans quite yet realize how big this this could be to me, it's quite different from, say, the steroid era, where I think a lot of us knew something was going on, but you couldn't really pin it down. You, you just had the feeling, oh, there's something wrong here. And we ultimately found out, yes, but even to this day, I don't think we know the extent of it. But this particular scandal, this uh, literal doing something that Major League Baseball has expressly forbidden told all the clubs you can't do it. We now know that at least a couple and probably more teams than have been involved were involved in is uh, potentially as, as serious a scandal as baseball has had to face. Uh, if the public loses confidence in, in the game, if they lose confidence in, in the players doing what they're supposed to do between the lines, uh, then, then baseball's in, in serious trouble. But having said that, if you're a White Sox fan, uh, as I am, and I think a lot of people who uh, live in this area are, uh, you've got to be looking forward to this new season with uh, real enthusiasm and kind of hope that uh, let the commissioner and uh, the various investigators uh, sort out what's going on off the field. Sox Fest is this Friday. Uh, I'll, I'm planning on going. Um, still trying to figure out if I go to uh, opening day or not. Um, in 2005, I did not. I was at the Pope's funeral, so uh, I don't wish the uh, ill papa any ill will, but uh, <laughs> we'll see what happens on, on opening day. Um, uh, you know, there's been a number of rebuilding years. It's It's been one after another, and, and people keep on looking to um, young, hopeful uh, drafts that are in development. They look at some pretty big – I mean, the Sox are notorious for, for not being scared of spending money. Um, I think the one criticism has been, uh, you know, we've we've proven that pitchers uh, win games for us, and and that's always backed up by pretty versatile players and young players who are hungry, not folks who have kind of had their time and uh, want to come to Chicago and be a DH. Um, 
but uh, you know, it seems that this year is pretty hopeful. Yes, it is, and I, and I think we have to give a lot of credit to uh, Rick Renteria and to the front office for last season. Uh, yeah. It was not, of course, a winning season, and it was a season that the, the Sox were never really in contention for anything. But I think they improved over the course of the year, and the main thing that, that was accomplished last year was the development of guys like Johan Moncada, uh, of Timmy Anderson coming into his own as, as a truly potentially great uh, shortstop and, and hitter, giving Aloy Jimenez the time that he needed to develop, and not making the mistake of trying to bring in a, a veteran player or a veteran bullpen pitcher when it really wasn't going to make any difference. I think the offseason moves this winter have suggested that there is real belief starting with with Rick Renteria and his staff, that these kids are now ready to actually compete. And not only has, you know, the, the roster been improved tremendously, thanks to a couple of uh, Cleveland moves, uh, including losing, pitch, you know, Corey Kluber, uh, the division is there for, your, for the taking. Uh, it looks right now as if it's the Sox in Minnesota, uh, but who knows? Uh, but certainly Cleveland doesn't look as strong. Detroit is in very much of a rebuild, as is Kansas City. So now is the time to, to make the move for it. And, you know, looking back, just as you said, I mean, Kansas City, Minnesota has been good. Uh, obviously, Cleveland has been very good and, and for, for a few years, and, and it's just been a tough division. It has. And there's been an elite team in the division every year for about a decade. Uh, can the White Sox become an elite team? In the next couple of years, yes, I think they can. Um, and maybe it's been overlooked, but, you know, getting Abreu signed for three years is an important move. Bringing in Encarnacion, I think, may turn out to be the move that really pays off, not just because he's got a couple more years left as a DH, but he can be a very positive influence on the young Latino players that uh, the Sox have assembled. And they've got a lot of talent in that community, and that talent needs to be nurtured and guided and helped to become full-time major leaguers. I think that's also a fan base that uh, that needs to be cultivated here uh, on the South Side. And, and the team has done a lot um, to do community outreach. As I said, this this week is going to be Sox Fest, and we'll see kind of the new face of a, of a new team. Um, I, I would be remiss in not doing my job if we didn't uh, talk about soccer while we have you here. Well, uh it's, uh, it's been a crazy year in soccer as well, and I, I think there are two, two major issues that have, have developed over the, uh, the last year. One of them uh, is just how spectacular Liverpool has, has been uh, on this huge unbeaten run, and I'll tell you, they are really going to have to work hard to blow the title this year uh, <laughs> because they're 16 points ahead of everybody, and they look unbeatable. Uh, Oddly, of course, Liverpool has never won the Premier League championship. Is that right? Because the league was formed after they won their last first division title. And as I think, you know, real soccer nerds know, they and Manchester United uh, have the most uh, combined titles at the, whatever you want to call the top division. But since they called it the Premier League, Liverpool hasn't won it. To me, the interesting question is not just how are they going to play out the rest of the Premier League season, but can they, in fact, also make another run at the European Championship that they won last season? 
I suspect that's going to be harder for them this time uh, because the focus is so much on on the uh, Premier League title and how what that will mean to Anfield. Of course, the other big issue is what's going on, if anything, with the U.S. national team. And they play World Cup qualifying games starting next fall. And there's no indication right now that there's any clear path to a, a really new look developing U.S. team. And I wake up this morning and find out that uh, Michael Bradley, who still is probably the best playmaking defensive midfielder that the United States has, is out for at least four months because of an ankle injury that apparently occurred in the MLS championship game. Now they're doing surgery six months later. So you just you wonder about some of the things that are going on uh, in, in U.S. soccer, although it's not U.S. soccer's fault that Bradley didn't get the surgery. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll see who that turns out to be. Josie Altador was rather outspoken when it was revealed yesterday and said that the Toronto, his Toronto teammate uh, hadn't been well, well taken care of. You know, we had uh, Peter Wilt in last week, and he was talking about a number of things. Uh, we, of course, brought up the new logo for the Chicago Fire, which none of us are happy about. Um, but we talked about uh, everything from fan participation to um, leadership at, at U.S. Soccer and, and kind of everything in between. But um, you brought up some of the some of the issues that uh, I thought about, um, particularly with with uh, the Fire. You know, trying to establish a new identity here in the city. Um, establish a new brand, basically, um, a new name, a new era. Uh, they have a, a new, uh, just signed a Slovenian striker, um, and uh, and and we'll see uh, how they establish that uh, that that game here. I think it's a it's a very big story uh, in American soccer. It's a big story for MLS, but it's a big story for the sport in general in this country because Chicago had it. When the fire debuted, they were on the map and they were putting soccer in, in the United States on the map. They lost that with the move to Bridgeview. We know that. We, we've been over that story a long time. They need to rebound. Soccer needs to rebound in Chicago. It has to be successful at Soldier Field because no matter how you cut it, MLS still has a serious problem of not being able to break out of the the mode in this country that has it in a secondary level as a sport. It's hard to find soccer talk on, on the radio. It's hard to imagine very many people talking about the opening of the next MLS season as March Madness is unfolding across the country. Soccer needs to be successful in the big cities. It appears to be making it now in Los Angeles with both uh, franchises there drawing well and generating excitement. It hasn't made it in New York. It hasn't made it in Boston. It needs to rebound here in Chicago. And I think for the fire, the opportunity is there to step into a fan base that wants a successful, exciting product. And I, I hope that, uh, that that that's on the horizon, but I've got to be got to be shown that it's there. You know, uh, when you look at uh, the season, we've talked about this a lot. That the fact that the MLS doesn't play, they play in the summer, 
um, and, and they play a different schedule. Um, it, it does seem, even though there's a lack of soccer talk in, in mainstream media, um, that there is an increased interest. I've had a lot of people talk to me about Liverpool this season. Uh, I think that's partly due to increased coverage. Um, you know, with uh, the NFL playing in London and, and some awareness of of uh, more international sport in general, I think I've felt that at least this season. I wonder if you've seen the same. You know, uh, soccer interest is undeniably continues to grow. Uh, NBC's audiences grow a little bit. Uh, even MLS's television audiences are growing a little bit. I think the, the footprint of the sport is expanding, and you can't you really argue with the fact that uh, here's a sport very successful in Atlanta, looks like it's going to be successful in places like Charlotte and Miami and Nashville, regions of the country we didn't think of as soccer areas at all 20 years ago. So that's very much a plus. Uh, but still, one of the problems is that if you go to a sports event, not a soccer game, but a sports event, and you see people wearing soccer jerseys, and you do quite regularly, those jerseys still are more likely to be of Barcelona or Liverpool or Arsenal or Chelsea than they are of an MLS team. Uh, in a way, we have been successful in educating the American soccer public to think that the best soccer in the world is still played in Europe. That's probably true, but it's also it, it makes it a tough sell for MLS on uh, on its own. Would they be better playing the traditional schedule? I think they would. I know that some of the NFL owners want to have their stadium used in the summer, but I also know that if the MLS championship playoffs were in May and June, they would be significantly more attractive and would draw much greater attention than they do now. Playoffs in October and November uh, against the NFL is suicidal. We're going to take a quick break. That was Mr. Jerry Trecker talking about U.S. soccer, uh, Liverpool's undefeated run this year. Um, we are get, we've got the Killer Drones coming up on WLPN 105.5 FM. You're listening to Lumpen Radio, and we will be right back with the Killer Drones.
You've been listening to WLPNLP Chicago 105.5 FM. This is 105.5 Lumpen Radio. It's Radio Free Bridgeport. You've been listening to The Killer Drones. Thank you guys very much. Mixed by Ari Shellist. Welcome back to WLPNLP Chicago 105.5 FM. You're listening to Lumpen Radio. Uh, for those of you who are with us, that was The Killer Drones. We've got them in studio now. Thank you guys for, for joining us. Go around the horn and introduce yourselves, please. Uh, I'm Michael. I play drums. <laughs> uh, Brian, I play bass. So, uh, I mean, thank you guys. That was that was great. Uh, Ari Shellist always uh, does a good job mixing people. Yeah, but you guys, great. I just told him that. Yeah, after I was like, yeah, that sounded good. <laughs> you guys painted uh, an interesting um, tapestry there. Thank you. Yeah, it was a lot hey, of the fun. Se- the setting's nice. You know, it's e- it's easy. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about uh, what we heard um, and a little bit about yourselves. Um, well, it's all it's all improv. Uh, spontaneous uh, composition. Uh, we've been playing together for about five years, so that's uh, typically where we lean yeah, we, towards. We play in his, his uh, we play, it's not in the space, it's in his apartment. So yeah. <laughs> we don't get to, yeah, we have to play kind of, we don't get to play loud all the, yeah, but mm-hmm. it's nice when we play in a place like this. So. Yeah, can let it loose. I noticed, <laughs> uh, I, Serious amount of uh, triggers and an interesting drum setup. Uh, as a drummer, I'm always interested in that. Tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, uh, well, we first started like five years ago, and it was a bit chaotic, just trying to figure out how to, you know, work all that into our set. But which was fun, and then it's kind of evolved over time, and it's like learning a new instrument. You know, it's like drums, but then you're also dealing with samples and triggers and all that fun stuff. We have another member, Donnie, who couldn't make it. Yeah, Donnie. Uh, he, he, he's, uh, he's taking care of his newly born baby. Um, so I guess that's a good but, excuse. But let's try to fill up some more space with like triggers and uh, you know MIDI stuff like that. I started playing a role in TDK five set, and I as a first drum kid, I wouldn't advise it. I didn't know what to do with it all, most of the time. Yeah, just you know, getting into it and figuring out the kinks and how to play with that. You know. Yeah, I had to go backwards as just a regular kid to learn how to actually. Uh, use that kind of yeah. a, a brain, but um, tell us a little bit about how you guys met and when you started playing five years ago. Um, well, uh, I think Donnie introduced uh, my well, Donnie yeah. worked to the coffee shop and he knew Corey, this guy or our friend Corey. Everyone, uh, knows, Corey. everyone knows Corey. That's why I say. <laughs> like, but uh, uh, yeah, I met Donnie and he introduced me to Brian and Matthew. Uh, we started playing together at Corey's house, and then um, we just kind of. Start another project at Brian's, and it became Killer Drones. Yeah. So. Where can we uh, Where can we hear you guys coming up? Uh, any shows? Any releases? Oh, uh, we just played the Hideout. Um, we don't have anything coming up after this. Uh, we have uh, a new release c- that we want to get out soon. Uh, it's pretty much done. And then we have music on Bandcamp. And what? Where can they find you on Bandcamp? What's the What's the URL? It's uh, Killer Drones. Killer Drones. Mm-hmm. Not the Killer Drones. Yeah, just Killer Drones. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things we ask everybody is, uh, what about the Chicago music scene that they enjoy, or, or what about it that has either helped or hindered uh, their projects? What do you guys think about that? Well, I like this scene. It's uh, very diverse. Um, a lot of interesting sounds. People tend to mix different genres together, and that kind of seems to be the Chicago sound. There's, there's so much going on. I mean, you go to other cities and you, you have some small venues, but there's it seems like it's just saturated here. Not in a bad way. I mean, we always 
find a place to play and there's always you know a venue to play at but <clears throat> I like it there's something for everyone you know mm-hmm. yeah it's a I like it. <laughs> I mean, I don't know any other. Matthew likes it. I like good people, you know. The reason why we ask is we, we've found uh, people have, have said that kind of historically that people have had to migrate to the coasts from Chicago in order to make it. And, and uh, I guess one of the things that we've noticed and, and people have commented on more is that while um, Pro Tools and things have been more accessible and people um, just have, have had more gig opportunities, and, and you already mentioned it, more diverse um, opportunities to play on bills with each other. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of networking here. Whereas, like, I don't know, I feel like if you go to smaller cities or different towns, you go to New York, it's it's harder, and California is so spread out. Where I don't know, this it's like a small town in a big city, kind of, you know. Yeah, <laughs> I feel the same. So. Well, tell us a little bit about what we heard again. I mean, obviously it was an improv set, but what were you guys? Uh, what were you guys thinking about when uh, you came into the Co-Prosperity Sphere with the neon lights in your face? Well, we've, we've played here before, so we're pretty comfortable with the space. Yeah, we yeah. all live really nearby, so. Yeah, it's a, about a two-minute trip over, so <laughs> it's kind of nice. But I think, uh, like, with how, you know, like, making music that way, I, uh, you know, try to um, uh, clear, you know, like, just be open. It's, it's kind of like a, it's a, you know, it's like a discipline. Like, a, you know, you can't, like, think about you know what you're doing. <laughs> if you think about it, you know it's it's hard. It's kind of let, let it happen, but I think we we had an idea yeah. of just you know start out. But that's what's cool about chill like and let it let it evolve. And when you make ma- yeah, like when you make music this way, like it's just like you play together. I think for a while and you do it, then you just have, you don't even have to, you don't even think. You know, it's just like you know sec. You know, you know. Ideally, it's mm-hmm. it's not perfect. Yeah, just try to enjoy <laughs> the moment. It's each other. Yeah, mm-hmm. perfect. But I mean, the moments that are good are really good. You know, so. But I, yeah, I like it's a good way of, of I, I like approaching yeah. music and that way, you know, creating our own atmosphere. Yeah, create the kind of create it first and then just let it kind of, yeah. you know, just combust or really slowly or build, you know, <laughs> let it blow up. But yeah, you said uh, you're all in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. yeah, I'm in Bridgeport. Matthew's here, too. I'm in Pilsen. Very close. Mm-hmm. How do you guys find the neighborhood for making music? Uh, it's been great because uh been able to connect with other musicians and we all live close and there's always a place to play so it's been great just to be able yeah to like being up. able to play here that was really nice of them you know mm-hmm. like nice well, people ha- with uh, resources they're willing to let us use so that's we're, cool you know? we're happy to have you here yeah, that's awesome yes, <laughs> yeah well again uh where can people find you again just give them the url obviously on, on Bandcamp. you mentioned yeah it's Bandcamp killer drones should be able to find us anything else you guys want to let people know um <laughs> thanks for listening yeah yeah thanks yeah. <laughs> well thank you thank you uh for for being here and uh <laughs> special thanks to mr trekker Ari shellist jamie trekker uh who came in the studio yeah, even though he's supposed to be uh you know doing his thing and recouping but uh, yeah, all the best to you jamie stud, yeah he's <laughs> unbelievable he's unbelievable um and all the folks from little league thank you guys uh, Killer Drones, uh, thank you guys very much, and uh, and hopefully we'll hear from you soon. All right. Okay. Thanks, Thanks, man. <laughs> You've been listening to Lumpin' Radio, WLPN, 105.5 FM. This is Radio Free Bridgeport. Thank you very much. <laughs>